holy name. And as we come into this passage this morning, it's important for us to recognize that we serve a God that is not made with human hands, but a God that is greater than all things. I ask that you to turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, the 19th chapter, verses 21 through 41. And you need to make sure you have it in your Bibles this morning. This is a long passage that we're going to walk through. Amen. Amen. That's the book of Acts, 19th chapter, verses 21. Through 41. And every time we say the scripture, would you please acknowledge it by saying, I serve the great God. I serve the great God. And would you please stand for the reading of God in error, in time of the word. Acts 19, 21 41. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia. And Achaia. And to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Arrestus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God's made with hands are not God's. And there's a danger, not only to this trade of ours, that it may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great God, a goddess, Artemis, may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians that were Paul's companions to travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Not even the Asiarchs, who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. 
Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who the Jews had put forward, and Alexander mostly with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out in one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus, or the city of the Ephesians, is the temple keeper for the great Artemis, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our gods. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and they and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you see anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed. Yes, May the Lord have blessed us to read here from what's important to the understanding and living of His Holy Word. You may see. My question to you this morning is why is idol worship such a powerful temptation? And I'm going to answer my own question here because I think it's a simple answer. Ultimately, the answer is sin. It is the sin nature of man that causes us to worship modern idols, all of which, in reality, are forms of us worshiping ourselves. So the temptation to worship ourselves shows itself in various ways, and it is a powerful temptation indeed. In fact, it is so powerful that only those who belong to Christ and have the Holy Spirit within them can possibly ever hope to resist the temptation of idolatry. And even resisting the worship of idols, we have to recognize, we're in our resisting the worship of idols, we have to recognize that this is a lifelong battle in our Christian life. Look at the videos. 1984. Do not turn to idols or make for yourself any God of Canaan. I am the Lord your God. Revelation 9, 20 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and the idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, of their sorceries, or their sexual immoralities, or thefts 
When we hear the word idol, we often think of statues and objects reminiscent of those things that they had during pagan worship in ancient times. But really, we have idols in this 21st century that bear no resemblance to them, but they are still idols. Today, we have replaced the golden calf with the golden American Express card. We have an insatiable desire and drive for money and prestige and success. We want to be loved in the eyes of the world. We pursue hiring the high regard of others as our ultimate goal instead of trying to pursue the high regard of our God. We will seek comfort in a myriad of other empty pursuits and these things show themselves to be our modern day idols. And in the end, it doesn't matter what empty pleasure you choose or you chase after. All of it points you to a false God. And all of it leads you to separation from the one truth and living God. If we truly understand our love for contemporary idols, it can help us understand why they are such a powerful temptation in our lives. So what is an idol, Pastor? An idol is anything we place ahead of God in our lives. Anything that takes the place of God in our hearts. It can be our possessions, our careers, our relationships, our education, our hobbies, our sports, our entertainment, our greed, our addictions, drugs, gambling, pornography, Anything that takes the place and privacy in our lives versus that of a great God becomes an idol to us. Scripture tells us clearly that we are to do all things for the glory of God and that we are to serve Him only. But unfortunately, we shove God out of the way and we zealously pursue our idols. And worse yet, the time we take away from God in the pursuit of our idols leaves us no time to ever spend with the truth and living God. And we turn to idols for different reasons. We're seeking solace from the hardships of life. We have addicted behaviors such as drug and alcohol use. Sometimes we can get caught up in a sense television view, but all of it is a temporary means of escapism to try to deal with the rigors of life when we need to go to our Father who says, come to me, all of you that are heavy burdened, and I will what? Give you rest. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 115 and 8 that we're to place our trust in God and that when we don't, we become spiritually useless. And it is God that keeps us from all hurt, harm, and danger. Philippians 6, or rather 4, 6 through 7 tells us that we should not be anxious about anything, but rather pray about everything so that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Well, you know something? There's another form of idolatry that is incredibly prevalent today, especially in the Christian church. 
It's the growth of this culture that wants to drift away from sound biblical teaching. Paul warned us of this in 2 Timothy 4 and 3. For the time will come when man will no longer put up with sound doctrine. This is the idolatry of the ears. Those itching ears that long to be stretched by hearing the preaching of self-esteem, prosperity, easy believerism. These are people who are not blood-bought Christians. And in times that are perilous like this, we live in a pluralistic society and a liberal society. A society that really wants to redefine God. A society that has forsaken God, the God that has been revealed in Scripture, and really recast them to comply with their own inclination. They want a gentler, a kinder God, one that is more tolerant than the one that is revealed in Scripture, one that is less demanding and judgmental than the one that is revealed in Scripture, one that will tolerate our many choices and lifestyle without placing any guilt on anyone's shoulder. Right now, we find ourselves in the middle, or really at the end of a month, where we are supposed to set aside this month to honor a perverted lifestyle to us. My friends, this is idolatry. Praise the Lord. The same-sex lifestyle places their preferences over God's principles. Don't get it twisted. Around the world, congregations believe they're serving the one true God. But they have created a God built on their own purposes over the principles that they see in Scripture. We need to bring our worship of God in harmony to how He's described in Scripture. Because as true believers, we worship a God not made of human hands, but a God who provides for our needs through His hands. As true Christians, we believe in a God that's not made by hands, but one that purposely exposes false gods. And we as true Christians worship a God not made with human hands, but a God that patiently requires disputes to be handled with justice. We, as true Christians, serve a great God. Let us pray. Dear Father, let us recognize and see ourselves in the words of this passage. Let us recognize how great you are, how worthy you are, and that you are worthy to be praised. If we can stand on your word in the faith of a dying culture, that we can believe you despite of the proclamations of this culture. That we are only out of step when we find ourselves outside of your will. Yes, sir. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all of us truly say amen. Yeah. You know, this is really one of the 
It is by far the longest passage in the book of Acts, especially when it deals with what's going on in Ephesus. And I think it's an important passage as well. Number one, we figure out that we serve a God not made with human hands, but one that is able to provide for us through his hands, then we don't believe that our wealth is built on what we do. We don't believe that our provision is built on what we can accomplish, but it's built on a loving God who gives us the ability to have what we have. Yeah, it's interesting here because Paul himself doesn't appear in this passage till, you know, this passage from 21 to 41. You don't see Paul until you get to verses 30 and 31. But Luke is trying to build an argument in to show us the final illustration of his impact, or rather his ministry's impact in all of Asia. And then when Paul does come on the scene, we see that the impact of his teaching is clearly seen by anyone who has ever heard it. All throughout Asia. So this passage shows us that there's great opposition and it really prepares us for what's going to come later in Acts 21, uh, 27 through 40. The disturbance here described is that it's a disturbance about the way. The way is Christianity. And we recognize unquestionably that the main sort of their contention and the Confirmation, not confirmation, but confrontation is about to happen here. It's all about Paul himself. Even Demetrius, when he makes his case before the city officials, he finally just casts himself in a role as the other accusers who have come out against Paul. We saw it in Philippi, we saw it in Thessalonica, we see it in Corinth. We got these angry protesters against Paul and his tribal companions, and they are attacking the fact that his preaching and teaching has had a profound effect upon the culture, upon the culture economically, upon the culture and their religious uh, practice, and really over the whole province of Asia. Look at 21 After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia, and Achaia. It was God who had resolved in Paul's spirit here to take this path. And really, when we look at a parallel of statement in Acts 20 through 22 through 24, look at it, Acts 20, 22 through 24. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that my imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, what kind of Christian do you have to be that you are being constrained by the Word of God and of God's Word is not holding back? All of the opposition you're going to face is telling you right up front. Every city you go to, there will be imprisonment and there will be afflictions because of it. We got people now who can't get over church or 
is man. What does church hurt have to do with Jesus? Those were people. We serve a great God. But look what he said. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to satisfy, or rather to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Praise the Lord. You know, you've been called and you've been compelled and you have to go. Here we see Paul thinking about being compelled by the same spirit that led to the root and then indicating that he was not, he was driven by more than his human resolve, but he was redirected by God's Holy Spirit. And we see in this passage currently that he has the same passion that God placed on his heart at the beginning of his first missionary journey when the Spirit directed him to Troas and where he was revealed in a vision that he needed to go to Macedonia. And there's also an echo here of a gospel narrative back in Mark that speaks of Jesus being under the divine direction of his father and having the necessity to go to Jerusalem even though he knows he's going to Jerusalem to suffer. Mark 10, 33-34, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. So that means when God calls us into action, he calls us in knowingly that we will suffer trials and tribulations, but as Jesus said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. You see, this soft sale that churches are propagating will never serve you in a true walk with Christ. First Corinthians 16:5-9. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I, I intended to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter there, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I will spend some time with you, if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide, here, here's a, here's a phrase, for a wide door of effective work has opened up to me and there are many adversaries. Anytime there's a wide door of effective work for the cause of Christ, there are going to be adversaries. Listen to me. If you don't have adversaries, it's because you're not working for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus. Plain and simple. Someone's not chasing you. If you're not facing opposition, it's because you're not about it. Plain and simple. Paul understood this. And even in Acts 19 21, he said, and after I've been there, he said, I must also see Rome. 
suggesting that he has defined necessity to visit Rome as well. But in this current visit, we see the climax of the whole narrative of Acts, even when Paul arrives in an unexpected way. The purpose of this final visit to Jerusalem is really not explained unless you put the pieces together. We recognize when we look at the other epistles of Paul that he was involved in the presentation of financial gifts from the Gentile churches to give relief to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Acts 24-17 Now for several years I came to bring all of the offerings to my nation and to present offerings. Luke really just skips over that in this particular passage and he goes right to those who are serving with him, with Paul. He says, having sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia while he stayed in the Propolis of Asia just a little longer. So we see that all through that, Paul is building this team effort whether it's going to be Timothy, whether it's going to be Priscilla and Aquila, whether it's going to be Gaius here and Aerostars. Every time he puts up these guys together and they are described as helpers, personal assistants to him, he gathers them as colleagues and he pours his life into them so that they might be able to go and teach the gospel independent of him. But even though they're independent of him, isn't it important for us to recognize they're never teaching anything different than what Paul taught? They're never using the time that Paul has allowed them to minister to seek their own agenda. They're always on the same page. They're always submitting to Paul's leadership as Paul is submitting to Christ. There's a clear understanding that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God, Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Then we look at verse 23, it says, about that time, when Paul was already making plans for the next day of his missionary work. I love how they phrase this. There arose no little disturbance concerning the way. So, he's standing in a negative way. So, of course, there was a large disturbance. There's no little disturbance. Then there's a large disturbance, right? And this phrase, the way, speaks to the fact that true Christianity itself was the cause of this large disturbance. And it hones in on the fact that Paul was chiefly responsible for bringing this new teaching to Asia. And he was clearly the target of their anger. So this phrase, the way, is used to describe the distinctive beliefs and practices of Christians. Because Christians in this passage, in this town, had put together a socially cohesive movement, a movement that was grounded in their faith, shared faith in Jesus Christ. We as Christians today are called to be part of a 
movement in fact we should be leading a movement in this culture instead of leaving this so that we lead this culture to Christ instead of this culture leading us to chaos yeah they might they're going to be challenged they're going to be offended but we are to show them that it is because of our love for Christ and we have love for them that we are trying to push society or lead society in a way where society will flourish. Whenever you answer the call to serve Christ, you're going to deal with opposition. We see it as quickly as verse 24. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of artifacts, brought no little business. Okay, if he brought a little business, he had a large business, right? To the craftsman. It was a making of his religious items of Ephesus that enabled his trade to flourish. Now, he had several other workers under his employ, or they were contracted with him to produce these things. And these little shrines, these little miniature replicas of the temple, uh, and places like deities were common was, were common with these pagan cults. And although Ephesus was the home of many cults, the most prominent and powerful deity for the Ephesians was Artemis, also known as Diana. It was said that this goddess received her name because she kept the people safe and sound. She was supposedly the daughter of Zeus. And they worship her because of her great lordship and her great supernatural powers. She was a virgin who kept women in childbirth. She was a huntress that was on the bow. She was a, guard, a goddess of death. And they put all of their faith into her, all of their faith in their belief. So those who sold these little relics, who sold these little items, made a very good living. And Paul, by preaching the truth of the gospel, that there is only one true living God, and he's not a God made with hands, that upset the apple cart. Look what he says in Acts 19.25. These he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. So anything that's going to threaten this business, anything that's going to threaten the cult, anything that's going to threaten their worship of Artemis, is going to threaten their pocketbook and their livelihood. That's why it's important to know where your wealth really comes from. Because you don't trust in what you're able to accumulate yourself, especially when it's based on a lie. Praise the Lord. Look at Acts 19.26. Starts to show us that God, our God is not a God made with human hands, but he's one that purposely exposes false God. And you see it here. That not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, and they come with the accusation, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. 
saying that God made with hand are not God's. Through pure gospel persuasion, Paul had moved people all over the providence of Asia to change from idolatry to infatuation and adoration towards Christ. And it took a while, over two years, you see Acts 19 said, this continued for over two years, so that the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. You see, the spreading of the gospel happens when you take ownership of the gospel message. That's when the gospel is multiplied. You know, everybody expects me to say, thus says the Lord, but when those in the pews speak to their neighbors, their relatives, their acquaintances, and they say the same thing, it has a total different effect. It gains credibility because they start to see the change that's happened in your life. It makes a better impression upon them. That's why sheep win sheep and pastors tend sheep. You want to grow, you need to get to work. <laughs> That's the way it happens. All it takes is for you to have one. Bring one. Demetrius rightly perceived that it was Paul's teaching, especially the teaching of saying that God's made with hands are not God's. And really, when we break down his argument here, he goes further and he first warns those who are manufacturers of these items that if Paul is allowed to continue, they might lose, their business might lose its good name and fall into disrepute. Look at 27a. And there's a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute. And then he gives the second reason, also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And then thirdly, he said, and the goddess herself, now this is a wild statement, the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the providence of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty and cast down from her grave. It never amazed me, amazes me how people can be so delusional. And then they want you to buy into their delusion. The temple of Artemis was a great tourist attraction for anybody traveling through this area. People will come and then contribute much to the prosperity of the city. There was much at stake for these silversmiths. In fact, there was no other Greco-Roman capital in the whole Roman Empire whose identity, whose body, soul, and spirit belonged so closely to a pagan deity as did Ephesus. So with a combination of issues here, a crisis and cash flow, it all climaxed in a call 
for loyalty to the gods. We see this call here in verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You see, there's a special bond there. She was the founder of the city, for they were concerned. She was a protector of the city, of their general welfare. They chanted this slogan, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then you start to see they go from chanting to challenging. Look at verse 29. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aerostarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Now, this theater that they're dragging Gaius and Aerostarchus into seats 25,000 people. It's an open air arena. They would have meetings there once a week. It was really an encouraging uh, venue. And they would tell the natural place for any impromptu meetings. But something really happens unusually here in verse 30, part A. Now we see Paul coming on the scene, right? But when Paul wished to go in among the crowds, they stopped him. The disciples would not let him. Why would the disciples not let him in? Because they considered the life of Paul too valuable to be risked in this way. They understood how God was using him and this was not a place for him to be if he was going to be content, to be continually used in the way that God is using Christians. They were shielding him from a situation that could have turned incredibly violent. Because remember, their focus is all on what Paul is doing through his preaching of the gospel. And let me turn one. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. These Asiarchs, it was a title, a title for an office, and it had like a fixed term. These were people that were in high up in administration and in city government, and they were usually chosen from the most wealthy people and the most aristocratic people in that particular region. And the thing that Paul, a lowly preacher, has such friends in high places. What did God tell him earlier? Don't worry about what you have to say, that I have people in this place. And from the top to the bottom, God always has a witness there if you will just trust him in faith to do what he's asking you to do. That he'll hook you up with someone else who's going to do what he has asked them to do. And together you're going to get done what God has asked to be done. Even in the face of great opposition. Look at 32. Now some cried out one thing and some another. For the assembly was in confusion and most of them 
is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and her image which fell from the sky? Why are we this bold? He said, there is absolutely no way anybody could ever not recognize the power, the sovereignty of Artemis. So really, you have no reason to be upset because they can't do anything to the fact that Artemis controls this all. And by the way, her very image fell from the sky. In your ESV, it talks about the sacred stones falling from the sky. Now, in those days, they would have meteors that may fall to earth, and they had no way to explain it. And it didn't happen that often. But when it did, they made the assumption that this meteor was sent by God. And in some translations, I think it makes a bad translation of saying that it came down from heaven. Now, to give the translation a break there, we call anything in the sky. <laughs> it didn't have to be the But when you say it like that, it, it, it gives equality, a false equality with God, right? So they were banking on it. So the Ephesians wanted to claim that they'll worship of this God without a God made from man because it came down from heaven. But we see here the city clerk is saying, hey, it's undeniable. So you guys need to calm down and not do anything rash. And he goes on to say, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious or blasphemers of our gods. To be sacrilegious would be someone who brought the temple. So they're saying they're not temple. And they have the last thing, our God. They're talking about their God. But who cares? Because our God is the great God. Okay? So he's putting forth his best faith, trying to restrain the crowd, many of them who totally disagree with his arguments. He takes it further, 38a. Therefore, Demetrius and his craftsmen, with him having a claim against anyone, the courts are open and there are court counsel. Now take it to court, take it to the judge. It can't be settled here. This is the wrong assembly to deal with this matter. This is a public meeting. He backs up to 39 and says, When you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. In effect, he's telling Demetrius to put off the question for a few days and allow it to be handled in the proper way. He's saying, Take your complaint to the judge for righteousness and do not mock it. That comes crystal clear to us in verse 40 when he says this, For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. You know, there's a, I think Luke is making a play on words there. 
because he's contrasting that Demetrius was saying that the danger was in the teaching of Paul, the, the, the teaching of Paul, the gospel that Paul was teaching, we see back in 27. And now the city clerk says, oh no, the real danger is that we can be charged with rioting when we do not have a just cause. Rioting in support of their religion was considered by the Romans to be provocative and potentially self-destructive. And he recognized that he would not be able to give an account for his promotion to the Roman government. And any city that was charged with righteous behavior could lose uh, the respect of the Roman officials. If he lost the respect of the Roman officials, what happened? Then the Romans come in and they rule. They would not allow you to rule by proxy anymore, right? So the city will be punished and they can lose their freedom. So what did he do? He dismissed his assembly. So the law and the law. So what do we see here? We see the potential and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform the life and the culture of a city and a surrounding region when it's done properly. We see what Paul is able to accomplish in a three-year uh, missionary trip, teaching the word of God in Ephesus and touching people at every level of society, beginning to transform the irreligious into religious people who are practicing and living in a way that honors God. But yet, wherever there is transformation, there will always be trial and tribulation from those outside who oppose the transformation. 2 Timothy 3, 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So what are we to do about this? We are called to be a part of a movement, a larger movement of the Church of Jesus Christ to transform lives, to transform neighborhoods, to transform behaviors. But that means that we have to completely believe what we are taught from the Bible. And that we just don't revel in the singing of how great is our God, but we hold that as a driving factor in our lives. And that is evident to anyone. I mean, I'm, I'm for adopting the attitude of the city clerk. How could anyone not believe in my God? How could anyone doubt? the power of the God I serve. How could anyone not want to serve and be loved and be protected from a God like ours? I think that's what we have to go after. Because we recognize that it is God who's going to be able to keep that word because of his greatness, because of his mercy, because of his faithfulness, that that word will never come back void. 
that assertion will never be disproven. Because our God can do all things. We must become a people who live it, believe it, testify to it. And you know, the more you you take a chance in places that you're uncomfortable outside of your comfort zone, and the more God uses you and blesses you, the more it affirms you in your own spirit that He is just as great as you are advocating. Praise the Lord. Now, sometimes I don't think we know the greatest God because we don't do anything. That's why sometimes I pray some of you go for something. Really? That only He gets you out. So that you will understand that he's exactly yes. everything that he said. Yes. 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 Father, we just love you praise you, Lord. Let us never doubt who you are, what you can do, and how great your plans are for each and every one of us. Build us up on everything inside. Constrain our behavior, our mouth, our tongue. Capture every thought that comes into our mind. Build us up on everything inside. And then, Lord, compel us to go out and share with everyone the reason for our life. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all of us truly say, Amen. Praise the Lord.